Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Mike P., Dave V., and Todd A. On the show today is Dr. Ben Sovacool. Ben is Professor of Energy Policy at the Science Policy Research Unit, University of Sussex, United Kingdom. Ben works as a researcher and consultant on issues pertaining to energy policy, energy security, climate change mitigation, and climate change adaptation. He is lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's Sixth Amendment Report, due to be published in 2022. You can learn more about Ben's work by visiting the university website, sussex.ac.uk. Ben, thanks for taking our invite and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, Ben, there's plenty of other interesting stuff about uh, you that I did not mention. Can you give the audience a bit on your background? Yeah, sure. Um, as it's very easy to tell here in Europe, I am an American. My accent gives me away. And my research in energy issues and climate issues is fairly new. I only got into it in graduate school where I was my a PhD student at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. And at that time, we were working on a very large National Science Foundation grant about how to make the American electricity grid more secure. And I remember this quite distinctly. There were, I think, about 16 different projects that were funded under this branch of the NSF. All of them but one were very technical. They were looking at things like building better transmission networks or better fuel systems or better kind of fuel cells or storage. Ours was the only one that looked at the social aspects, which meant we had a lot of stuff to cover. But it was a fascinating space at which we started to think through some of the issues about the politics of distributed energy or some of the social and environmental benefits of renewables or some of the decision making processes behind households or even some of the new business models that were emerging with things like district heat or heat as a service or energy services. And it really opened my eyes because it was the first time that I learned about how the American electric utility sector works. It's the first time I ever heard the phrase nuclear fission. It's the first time I learned about wind and other small scale resources like solar. And kind of after that, it, it, it just took off. I um, was lucky enough to do a postdoc at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee which is very close to Virginia. <laughs> it's where they actually invented, so to speak, uh, nuclear power in a way uh, under the Manhattan Project. And then I spent many years overseas after that trying to kind of learn more about the politics and the policies for renewables um, in places like Singapore uh, and Denmark and now here in the UK. So tell us a little bit about your clients. Who do you assist on matters related to energy and how do you approach the various needs of those clients? Well, it's kind of weird to use the term client because even now at universities, we've we've started to adopt these these kind of more business natured terms. So we even refer to our students as clients and some of our funders, the research councils that fund our work as clients. So of course you have the usual stakeholders then of some of my main clients are literally the students that I advise and some of the funders that will have very specific outputs for our grants to meet. 
But I think the broader issue is we also still take a means to kind of do a lot of work for other types of institutions to help. And the two examples that I'll give would be the government as well as intergovernmental organizations. So when it comes to the government, we do try to advise at many different scales um, with independent data-driven analysis to help address some of the pressing questions that they have relating to the effectiveness of certain policies. So we will do things like calculate the optimal price of a feed-in tariff, or we will talk about some of the negative maybe distribution effects of a certain tax credit, or the need to reform a particular piece of legislation around nuclear waste. And then for intergovernmental organizations, we do really try to help advise some of the big players in the energy and climate space including the IPCC, who you mentioned in your introduction, but also groups like the International Energy Agency. They do a very nice world energy outlook. We try to provide input to that. The International Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA, which is more new, located in Abu Dhabi. We help advise them some of their projections about jobs and growth and positive externalities. And then finally, we try to advise some of the banks and financial institutions that help shape energy flows. So here I'm thinking the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, where we've done work looking at uh, some of the off-grid uh, systems that you have in place to address energy insecurity, like pico-hydro and micro-hydro and biogas and solar home systems. So quite a long list of stakeholders, but I, I think it reflects kind of the diversity and the complexity of the energy challenge itself. And I guess the hidden lesson there is that to be effective, academia can't do it alone. It has to partner with governments, planners, policymakers, financiers, and other institutions. Right. And how do you, just from a broad uh, perspective, how do you approach energy, Ben? What are your thoughts on all of these various sources we have available today? <laughs> well, I, I can tell you a quick anecdote. I, I hope my mother is not listening because she hates this anecdote. But when I was in graduate school and I told her about the NSF grant that I mentioned a few minutes ago, the one I was really excited about, looking at electricity and distributed resources and decentralized supply, the first words out of her mouth was, why? It sounds so boring. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and I think to many people... Energy systems and even climate change is a very technical phenomenon that they don't think has much to do with them. And I think the kind of central point of my research has been to kind of open that up and reveal the social side of what are often considered the technical aspects of energy distribution or provision or use. And by the social side, I use that term as a very broad catch-all category that includes kind of politics, behavior, culture, policy, business, social acceptance, all of that fits into the very fascinating social side. And anybody who has spent at least some time in the energy research community may know that oftentimes getting the technology right is the easiest part. The hardest part is then getting that technology promoted, diffused, used, accelerated by different policies and accepted. And I think it's that second aspect, the social systems that surround our energy hardware that I find most fascinating. Uh, interesting. No, I, I think you're, you've got a, a solid point um, because also you've got that human part of it that uh, there's there's a reluctancy to to want to change in in a lot of systems that are set up and a lot of businesses that are set up and and uh, you can certainly see the slowness that that has occurred over the many decades of how energy has changed. Well, what is the ideal energy mix that all nations should pursue? And do you believe that all nations should enjoy energy independence? 
No, very tricky questions. Uh, and, and while they have a kind of elegance and simplicity to the questions, the answers are quite complex. And also my own thinking has kind of evolved on this topic. If you had asked me maybe 10 years ago, I would have given you a more formulaic answer. I would have said that in my mind, the priority of resources is very clear. First and foremost, energy efficiency to kind of minimize waste, to reduce peak demands, to do a whole host of other benefits, because usually energy efficiency is so affordable and low cost, it can do, you know, the cheapest power plant is the one that you never build. Or as my colleague Amory Lovins often says, energy efficiency is not just a free lunch, it's the free lunch you get paid to eat, because the savings keep accruing year after year after year. And anybody who looks at energy systems knows they are very inefficient, not just thermodynamically, but also in the ways that society doesn't use a lot of the useful energy that it could. The example that I like is that the traditional power plant, a traditional fossil fuel thermoelectric power plant, will waste two-thirds of its fuel just by converting the fuel into another form of energy at the power plant. So there are huge opportunities to capture that waste and improve efficiency. I would also then have said that the next options that I would have promoted were all of your low-cost renewables, things like wind and solar and hydro and geothermal. And I say low cost because I'm taking a full social cost. While these things may be higher priced in terms of capital cost, they have obviously low to no fuel costs. And more importantly, they can avoid a whole host of negative externalities, things like degraded health and climate change emissions. And when you factor those into the price of energy, uh, the cost of fossil fuels is actually much, much higher than we currently pay. So energy's cost does not currently match its price. And a socially aware pricing mechanism almost in every country shows renewables beat fossil fuels unless you happen to have very specific types of resources like high quality gas that is very close to the source of proximity that you want to use it. Now, I said that would have been my answer 10 years ago. My thinking has evolved a bit primarily because I've spent a lot of time in Asia and Africa where you have more embedded infrastructures and a legacy of fossil fuels, things like coal and kerosene, that are very difficult to kind of get rid of. And because in those types of environments, supply chains are so well established, disrupting them could often mean the lack of energy services. And that's actually one of the last things that we want in a world in which billions of people already suffer from what's called energy poverty, which is the inability to access modern forms of electricity or modern forms of cooking. In fact, if you happen to look up one of the most depressing reads you'll ever read, which is called the Global Burden of Disease Study. This is produced by a journal called The Lancet every four or five years, and it, it tracks how humanity dies. That's why it's one of the most depressing things. It converts deaths and injuries and illnesses into a unit called a disability-adjusted life year. And then it calculates across different risk sources the things that kill us smoking tobacco, drunk driving, heart disease, cancer, and so on. And what's amazing is on that list, the number four killer, the fourth leading cause of death in the world from the last global assessment was cooking. It's literally how people cook. About four million deaths a year relate to how mostly women and children cook on traditional cookstoves in the developing world. That's 11 deaths a minute, and 80% of those deaths are in young children or young mothers. So clearly a huge social cost to lack of access to energy. And if you're having to weigh those types of costs and benefits, to me, it's more important to get those millions of households access to any form of energy, even if it's fossil fueled, just to help promote better 
indoor air climate and less indoor and outdoor air pollution. So I think that this means that in many countries, while I would still advocate the whole efficiency plus renewables first approach, I realize one size doesn't fit all. And there are many such circumstances, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, uh, where you have a different set of priorities that revolve not around climate, but more about things like energy access, poverty reduction, and economic development. Well, very interesting information, Ben. I appreciate you sharing some of those insights. I want to switch gears over and I want to talk about your general view on climate change, global warming. Uh, maybe you can explain the difference between those two terms. Uh, but now this trend has been gaining a lot of traction with advanced nations. And there is a wide variance of opinion with one extreme saying it does not exist. And then the other side saying that the world will end soon. Is this all a show to implement a policy or is there a sensible position on this issue? I hope there's a sensible position. I mean, I have seen both of the extremes of the climate change debate. On the one hand, at the extreme, you have the climate deniers, people like President Trump who believe that it's a hoax, people that believe it's exaggerated or it's invented by the Chinese or it's a ploy by scientists like me to attract funding we wouldn't otherwise get or to feel important, there's even that narrative. On the other extreme, you even have what's now been called climate fatalists. And these fatalists go the other way and say, not only is climate change real, it's the end of the world, the apocalypse is coming, and they're doing things like, well, we should all just not have children, and we should perhaps consider committing suicide. And I kid you not, I've heard these things come up <laughs> at conferences because they say, what can I do to, to, you know, everything we do has environmental consequences. Everything we do has carbon emissions from the coffee we drink to the conference we attend to how we get to work to the gift we buy our partner. Right. So if the only way not to contribute is to be dead. <laughs> so I think those are the two extremes of the debate. And I certainly believe there is a sensible approach you know, in the middle. And I quite liked President Barack Obama's kind of take that we have basically um, three ways to deal with climate change that are sensible. We have, you know, mitigating emissions, which is stopping them going up into the air. We have adapting to climate change, building its kind of resilience to its coming effects. And then we have the third path, which is just misery and suffering, which we obviously want to avoid. But to me, climate change is very, very real. It is very, very urgent. We see temperatures have already changed in the past 30 or 40 years, and it has, it is already having a profound impact on changing weather patterns on the, the kind of livability of different ecosystems and habitats, uh, even other indicators relating to health and economic growth. All of them are at risk. It is like a meta threat. I think in the United States, the Department of Defense used to call climate change a threat multiplier. It's not that it creates all these new threats, but it takes a lot of the threats that currently exist, refugees, droughts, water insecurity, forest fires, whatever they might be, and it multiplies them. So it makes a world like today look much, much more aggravated and problematic in 10, 20, or, or 50 years. Um, and if we take some of the projections that are coming out from the most recent assessments about things like sea level rise or the acidification of the oceans, those do get very scary. We are now entering the realm of probability, not certainty, but probability that we could see sea levels rise by a meter, which would have devastating effects for coastal cities around the world. And it could literally mean certain countries like the Maldives, do not exist anymore within our lifetime. Some countries will be uninhabitable because of our impacts on the climate. So to me, it's a very certain and kind of scary thing, but it's not so bleak that we should all be fatalists. I mean, there are hosts of things that we could all do 
that simultaneously cut emissions, but also provide growth and jobs and energy services. So it isn't Sophie's choice where we all have to become, you know, people who don't eat meat and have no modern luxuries, warm beers and no showers. It's none of that. There are lots of opportunities, hundreds of opportunities that we can have that synergize climate action with a lot of the other things we want from jobs and growth to security and safety and convenience. Well, thank you. I want to move uh, move on just for the sake of time, Ben. Um, what are your thoughts specifically on the footprint requirements of things like wind and solar power and the associated energy production density intermittent solutions that are needed to replace baseload fossil fuel and nuclear generation? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And it's, it's kind of another one of these ones that might seem simple until you really delve into it. Also, even the notion of a footprint, right? Whether you're talking about a footprint that stays the same over time or it changes over time, um, whether you're talking about a footprint that includes kind of embodied emissions across the life cycle of these technologies. So if it's nuclear power, are we treating the uranium mine, the uranium mill? And what about the waste? If it's fossil fuel, what about the coal mines and the barges and the railway networks and the trucks that deliver it? What about the fly ash and how you store it? What about the particulates that are raining down over cities and damaging forests? So it becomes really complicated because renewables concentrate a lot of their environmental impacts on site. And they're very visible, right? You drive by a wind farm. Some people think it's beautiful. Some people think it's ugly, but it's certainly visible. It gets a visual reaction, especially because the things are moving, right? They draw the eye to them. Most people that are listening probably have never even seen a combined cycle natural gas plant. Maybe they've seen one coal mine. Maybe they've seen the Hoover Dam. But to them, energy infrastructure is out of sight and out of mind. And that often means that it's a false comparison to say, well, renewables have all this impact because we can see look at it on its farm, or we can see them on people's homes, and fossil fuels have no impact because they're away from our cities. When in fact, many of the environmental costs of fossil fuels are magnitudes of order much more serious than those from renewables. So the take that I try to promote is a more kind of whole systems assessment of, I wouldn't even say footprints, I'd say environmental and social costs of energy. Economists often call these externalities because they're external to the transactions at hand, i.e. neither the consumer of electricity or the supplier of electricity pays for the externality. It's instead paid by someone else, usually society, right, by hospital admissions or degraded land or future pollution or other future generations. So it's also there are temporal and spatial splits with the way that a lot of these costs and benefits are distributed. But when you try to grapple with those, and you do take an assessment that is across the whole life cycle and an assessment that also tries to accommodate different temporalities of those flows, you tend to find that the, the three most damaging forms of energy are oil, coal, and natural gas. Nuclear is usually in the middle, along with big hydro. And then things like wind and solar and efficiency are, are at the best. And one of the best studies I've ever seen on this, it's getting a bit old, and I can also confide we are in the middle of updating it. But there was a meta-analysis done of externality studies about 20 years ago. God, I can't believe it was that long ago. And the meta-analysis looked at more than 100. I think it was 132 different estimates of these social costs of energy for all the different systems that I mentioned, coal and oil and gas and nuclear. And at that time, it supposed that something like 19 cents of damage per kilowatt hour came from coal. And back then, coal only cost about three or four cents per kilowatt hour. 
you're talking the avoided cost, the cost that it took a, a utility to generate coal-fired power in the U.S. So that it was 19 cents of damages, but a three cent current market price just shows the market was completely distorted. All of those hidden social costs that coal produced were not being accommodated by the price of coal. And 19 cents per kilowatt hour is a lot. I mean, that's that was more than the rate of electricity that people paid at the retail rate. Next was things like gas and oil and nuclear, which were around 12 cents or 8 cents or 5 cents. And then you kind of had the renewables, which were less than 1 cent. So if you take that meta-analysis as a proxy, given all the different caveats and contextualities within the research, coal is 19 times more damaging than wind on a kilowatt hour basis. Even though wind is intermittent, even though wind might need storage, even though wind might need things like compressed air and transmission lines and all of that, when you weigh environmental costs dollar per dollar using the best environmental science we have, and the best monetization techniques that we have, mixing things like willingness to pay and damage costs and all of that, coal is 19 times more dangerous. And it does a 19 times worse job at things like hurting our forests, hurting our communities, contributing to morbidity and mortality, and so on. So to me, the fact that wind turbines might blight a particular landscape, well, that belies the fact that coal is already ruining that landscape in many ways, just not visible to the eye. With wind and solar, I, I, one of the things that uh, that people don't talk a lot about yet is potentially, you know, when you talk about energy waste, you certainly hear about other types of forms of waste. I think nuclear waste comes up quite frequently. Um, and one of the issues is, is that maybe we have not yet to fully comprehend uh, with things like solar and wind specifically is we really could potentially have a new waste challenge before us and that is component waste regarding disposal and recycling from a growing amount of worn out parts, panels, bearings, batteries, etc. As you know, you know, the, most of these things have a relatively short lifespan. What are your thoughts on how we solve this new type of waste problem and replacement issue? No, that's another another great question. I mean, I, I can start by kind of building on my earlier answer. When I talked about that meta survey about externalities, I should have mentioned that it did include not only pos negative externalities, but also positive externalities. You can have a positive externality. For instance, one country integrating renewables makes a more stable grid that then makes its neighbor's grids more stable as well because you have a, a more stable system to interact with. And in that meta survey, when they assessed all of the different externalities, they all ended up net negative. Even though wind and solars were less than one cent, they're still in the red rather than in the black. So what that does imply is that we still have no such thing as a environmentally benign source of energy. Even wind and solar have their cost, right? And you can quantify that cost and you can see it in things like components and waste. Anyone who's ever been to a wind farm being under manufacturing knows it's like an industrial site, right? You've got heavy trucks, you've got concrete and aluminum, you know, and lots of traffic and other types of development and deforestation and lots of material inputs. And one of the issues with renewables is because they don't combust fuel, you know, you have, there are a lot more materials intensive per megawatt installed, right? I mean, for what it does over a 40 year lifetime, a nuclear reactor is a pretty efficient machine. Right? It only takes a few thousand tons of material to make that, and it runs and runs and runs with its own problems, but it will run. Whereas wind farms and solars are so distributed and so kind of you know decentralized, you're generating power in kilowatts and small megawatts. I think most commercial wind farms now are using turbines at the three to four megawatt per turbine scale, where a traditional combined cycle power plant is 300 megawatts, and a nuclear plant is a gigawatt. 
1,000 megawatts. So the scale at which renewables can meet the challenge of decarbonizing is a more materials intensive one. And that leads to your question about all of these different products. And having worked now with the industry, I mean, I was very lucky in Denmark where I directed the Center for Energy Technologies, and we did many projects with Siemens Wind Power, now Siemens Gamesa, and Vestas. So I know that the engineers there are very concerned with things like repowering, recycling, and the back end of the fuel supply chain for wind. Uh, and they're working on ways to maximize the resource efficiency of a lot of those products. And I think to me, there are two very easy things that you can do which would help increase that efficiency of that process and better track for these types of material flows. One of them is within these firms, better sub uh, supply chain and logistics planning. So even though our study, which we, we did a study on wind farms um, and some of the environmental profit and loss associated with their manufacturing, even though we had access to the supply chain data that everyone else did at some of these companies, they never did the assessment. So it wasn't until we got together, the four of us, and did our assessment that we even revealed to some of the managers some of the externalities and some of the material inefficiencies that arose. So I guess the first thing is starting to track and better account for and monitor where a lot of these components are supplied from, you know, how long they take. Our assessment was looking not just at carbon, but also things like waste, waste sent to landfill, waste that was incinerated on site, e-waste. We also looked at things like particulates and NOx and SOx, nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide. So it wasn't just climate, it wasn't just carbon, which is one of the other mistakes people make when they think about environmental costs. And just doing these types of exercises, these environmental profit and loss exercises, can really reveal over these supply chains a lot of the kind of hidden costs that even the companies themselves didn't know existed before. I think the second thing that they can do, there's a push now, there has been in Europe now for about a decade, for extended producer responsibility or EPR. EPR says that it tries to make those who are responsible for the recycling or the collection or the waste streams that a product generates, it shouldn't be on consumers because what do we know? We have a bad enough time disposing of our batteries and it shouldn't be on government because governments are already stretched as it is and they don't have enough money for healthcare and education. So it says what we need to do is make the companies, the manufacturers and the suppliers themselves responsible for a cradle to cradle approach that takes the components back at their end of useful life and handles them. And the idea is that with an integrated EPR approach, two things happen. One, a lot of these companies start designing products that can be better recycled at their end of life, which they're currently not. And two, uh, they already have all of the knowledge and technical know-how for how to kind of disassemble and reuse many of the materials anyway because they're the ones building them. So it kind of creates a, a huge ethos and more of a circular economy to how we actually deploy things like solar panels, storage, wind farms, heat pumps, and so on. And if you look at some of the numbers going forward between now and 2050, if we are going to meet our decarbonization challenge. We're going to have to grow from, you know, I think it was 10 million electric vehicles next year to a billion, a billion, a thousand million. So a growth from 10 to a thousand in 40 years, right? So the amount of waste, right? All these millions and millions of electric vehicles that are going to have to be carefully recycled, their material flows, their batteries and other components will have to be tracked and disposed of. And we're dealing with some pretty nasty things inside those batteries, 
not just lead, but things like cadmium and chromium and, and copper and cobalt and lithium um, that you want to keep track of. Uh, and so I think there is a huge case to be made that the only entities that could handle that volume of waste are those that are already handling that volume of diffusion and sales, and those are the manufacturers. Right. No, and I, I think you had some good points. And uh, if you can take a chain of custody that exists perhaps in the nuclear industry with, with fuel and waste and, and all the all the processes there, how tight it is, and you apply that to things like batteries, worn out panels and, and so forth, uh, I think that you would you would certainly have a way better way better setup. So I think that there's a lot of work to be done to get to that kind of certainty level of where's the waste, how are we taking care of it, how are we securing it. And not just not, you know, both environmental security and also just, you know, security, general security that we think of every day um, as far as safety. Now, uh, isn't all this been really bullish for mining? Um, we have all these intense materials that go into everything we have, you know, whether you, you have an iPhone in your hand or a, a Samsung device or a computer or you know, some new battery that, that holds a charge for a long period of time, whether it's uh, Redox flow batteries or these new types that are being tested and so forth. This would all be, to, in my mind, really bullish for mining and materials. And that brings me to my next question about green energy. You know, folks have recently put the word green in front of energy, but is it really green when you calculate the component inputs needed to mine, process, fabricate, install, and maintain? As you know, no source of energy is perfect. So doesn't all energy have some form of impact because it costs something and consumes something? It, I mean, it does. But but I'm still convinced that the numbers from that meta survey that I mentioned earlier are roughly right. That, that you know, yes, even something that produces one cent per kilowatt hour of damages. I mean, these things are producing millions or billions of kilowatt hours over their lifetime. So it, it ends up being billions of cents of damages. And those damages will often occur, for, especially for wind and solar. It's certainly at the minerals and extractive industries, as well as the back end. The front end and the back end of those fuel cycles are the most environmentally destructive. For others, like coal, it's probably the actually point of use in combustion. As bad as coal mining is, there's far more danger coming from a lot of the coal that's burnt because of things like particulate matter and acid rain, which damage crops and fisheries and all of that. But I still don't think any of this is a reason not to do renewables. It may be a reason that we consume a lot less and we have these hyper resource intensive economies, right, that have so much waste. I mean, I'm still traveling around Europe and I still get served in styrofoam cups, you know, and I still, you know, have all these disposable things when I take my children to go fast food if they're not feeling well. So I think, you know, as a whole, there is this kind of push that we should probably create towards more sustainable forms of capitalism. I'm not sure how much longer humanity can continue to believe this kind of illusion that it can grow and grow and grow and that economies and incomes can perpetually grow. I mean, bio, biology and physics and a whole variety of other sciences have shown that isn't the case. But I think, you know, separating this broader debate about capitalism and sustainability, we should still seek to do renewables as smartly as possible. And even right. within the kind of range of different practices, right, within the range of different extractive industries and, and the different companies that are involved, also different elements of the supply chain. So, if, for instance, if you're talking about cobalt, you actually have four very different elements. You have like cobalt mines, you have places where cobalt is actually enriched, you have it where it's assembled into manufacturing devices, and then you have it where it's recollected at different scrap sites. So it's like even those different sites have entirely different webs of institutions and actors 
that are involved in the supply chain. And you have some very, very evil characters. You have criminal gangs and the mafia involved in some of the illegal cobalt trade. And you also have some incredibly sustainably responsible and corporate stewards who are trying to do the right thing and are doing higher priced ethically sourced cobalt even though it costs more because they want to guarantee that their cobalt is free of child labor so i think that's the kind of trick it's it's not to paint the extractive industries as black or white it's to see it as shades of gray with some poor performers that you should avoid and some best practice performers that you should celebrate and support. And I think that the key is if you could do it, focusing on only the best governed best practices, you would significantly reduce a lot of the costs that we read about in the different magazines. It's the same sort of way in which a majority of the pollution from coal or nuclear comes from a, a few poorly performing and designed sorts or sites or facilities. It's always those kind of poor performers that tend to create the most damage. And the kind of benefit is that there's a smaller number of entities you have to control. But the downside is, is that if there were easy fixes to solving those entities, we would have already have done them. And there are often strong political reasons um, that those industries are in place. So I guess this also starts to get into some of the issues about the politics of sustainability and the embedded nature or the lock-in of a lot of these supply chains. And that's kind of what also prevents us from choosing the best performers over the worst performers. Yeah, and you bring up some other points, which we, we won't have time to get into, but but your comments about growth are key. And uh, it's, it's, a tight, it's a tight line between uh, government regulation and, of course, private industry and the incentive through profit to to advance and uh, it's it's a fine tightrope uh, walk we're we're in now uh, i want to move over a little bit and talk about nuclear energy for a moment in your opinion does nuclear have a role to play in the future of energy or are you of the opinion that nuclear is on the decline well i think there's no question that it's on the decline i mean anyone who follows the kind of world nuclear report or even updates from the world nuclear association knows that it's it's not the renaissance the industry had hoped for even in the united states the relicensing of reactors is going more slowly than expected the push for next generation four technologies and small modular reactors and thorium reactors is still entirely on paper they're paper reactors that are you know conceptually possible but not yet really built with the very few exceptions like the phoenix reactor in france or epr reactors that are coming up nuclear also as we all know suffers from incredible cost overruns and delays given how complex it is i mean a nuclear react a nuclear reactor for lack of a better term is essentially controlling a nuclear weapons explosion in slow motion and using it to boil water right so it's not exactly i mean there are easier ways to generate electricity and i think a lot of those kind of economic reasons around things like cost overruns and the unexpected sudden drop in, sh in, in gas prices with the shale gas boom and all of that hurting nuclear and as well as solar and demand side management so it's kind of like a quadruple threat nuclear has been kind of hit uh, from 10 years ago with a whole wave of uncertainties that question its viability you know as a baseload source as well as this whole discussion about how future grids may not want to be so inflexible with such huge uh, sources of baseload power we want a more supple right decentralized modular grid that is flexible and can react much faster to changes in the wind uh, or the sunlight that all said I still think nuclear has a role to play, and, and my own thinking has evolved on this. I mean, I, as much as I may not be for new nuclear reactors, or as I may not be for nuclear over renewables and efficiency in most places, who am I to say if a community or a country fully prices and properly assesses the role of nuclear and they decide they want to go for it, that's their right. 
Um, so nuclear will have a role to play in certain regimes around the world where it is deemed beneficial, sometimes for the energy, and other times you have other priorities. My colleagues here at Sussex, Andy Sterling and Phil Johnston, have done some great research that talks about the links between nuclear power and nuclear submarines and defense. And that one of the big reasons they're trying to push for a nuclear renaissance in the UK isn't really for energy. That's a stated purpose. But the real reason is national security and retaining the, the kind of labor and the expertise and the knowledge about Trident submarines. Um, and so this is kind of the conflation of energy goals with other national security goals. And that's one of the kind of the promises or the perils of nuclear is it's intertwined with national security. And it's also intertwined with medicine and even agriculture, because you can do things like irradiate crops and other types of nuclear protection. Um, so in my mind, that in communities that, that properly can do it safe and that can, can properly have the safeguards, that it, it can certainly have a role there. I think there's also a case that could be made for communities like the US where you've already built a lot of the reactors and you could extend them if you can extend them safely, right? You've already cited them, you've already built the infrastructure, you've already got indemnity and, and other types of liabilities in place and communities accept them and support them and you've got local jobs, then why not? It certainly belongs in those places. Where I don't think it belongs is in places where there's severe accidents like Chernobyl or Fukushima or where the next accident will be. And that I think is a quite kind of compelling argument to me against nuclear. It is the only technology that we currently use to generate electricity that can have catastrophic meltdowns as it does. And I teamed up with some researchers at ETH Zurich, which is an institute in Switzerland, to do what's called probabilistic risk assessment for nuclear reactor failures. We built a data set that went back uh, 50 years and we calculated the probability of future accident scenarios and we found that it would be more likely than not to have another Chernobyl-like event or Fukushima event within our lifetime. And MIT has been running the future of nuclear power report that they updated every four or five years and their probabilistic risk assessments talk about three or four Chernobyl-like accidents between now and the end of the century and likely seven or eight Three Mile Island-like accidents which might be able to be contained, but they still have the ability to become a Fukushima or a Chernobyl. So to me, it's not worth the risk. I mean, if it was nuclear or nothing else, and we go without electricity, then maybe nuclear is worth the risk in the same way that cars are worth the risk for the car crashes that they cause. But just like cars have alternatives like bicycling and walking and mass transit, so does nuclear power. And I would much rather have a, a system that doesn't run the risk that we may turn on the TV tomorrow morning and learn about the next nuclear accident that happened in Paris or London or New York or Texas or wherever it may be around the world. Because I can guarantee you, while we don't know where it will happen, it is a matter of when, not if, there will be a future accident. Yes, sometimes it makes, uh, makes me wonder about the technology improvements and some of the stuff that's being done today, the inefficiencies of construction today in that industry versus uh, what was able to be done uh, in prior past, uh, the fact that the maritime applications, uh, military and potentially even commercial reactors specifically in the military have been used for, for, for many, many years specifically. A good base case would be the United States submarines, uh, naval applications where you've had a, a really a fantastic success with, with using those and obviously the, the reasons why you use uh, nuclear reactors in the submarine are, are abundantly obvious, I think, for most folks. And you, you bring up another interesting point, Ben, about uh, the if or when question. And uh, we all know that when we get into airplanes, uh, namely Boeing 737 MAX uh, aircraft, 
and we we things like uh, Fukushima that come up, people think about the nuclear reactor and forget about maybe perhaps the 20,000 that died from the tidal wave um, and these different risks that are just inherent with living and whether or not we jump on a mass transit and, and, and fear of a terrorist attack uh, or get onto a, an airplane or these different activities that we partake in, drinking alcohol, uh, different things that we do every day knowingly uh, and sometimes uh, not so not so willingly as well. Um, I think it's just an interesting how the perception is in the public about these different types of things. Now, one of the things I want to go back and ask you quickly, Ben, what are your thoughts on natural gas and this abundant supply specifically? Let's just use the U.S. as a case. Do you think nat gas continues to be low priced and in abundance of supply? Really good question, Andrew. I mean, gas to me is also belongs in the middle, right? To me, I mean, I think it's quite clear whatever assessment you use, and that's the other thing. When we talk about energy, it's kind of a multi-criteria plane of assessment that we should have. It isn't always just about energy. There are other criteria that come involved in the calculus of decision making, whether it's jobs or growth or security or dependence and all of that. So it kind of the broader question is that it depends on what you want. If you want certain things, you'll pursue certain energy paths. And if you want other things, you'll pursue other energy paths. But I think that when you add up most of the criteria across most of the dimensions, social, political, economic, environmental, we do need to phase out for sure from coal and oil. And in my mind, we clearly want to embrace and celebrate efficiency and renewables. The two very big question marks are in the middle, and that's gas and nuclear. They could have a role to play in certain situations. There are lots of contextual factors that kind of depend on when. The thing about prices, too, is, is they're extremely unpredictable. I mean, I've been checking Henry Hub prices for gas over the past 20 years, and it looks like a roller coaster. And just because we currently have low costs doesn't mean we will. And all it could take is another Hurricane Katrina, which, by the way, caused gas prices to go up way back then by about 70 or 80 percent, or pipeline explosions, or even some of the shenanigans that some of the other LNG exporters could do. If there was a major fire at one of the terminals in, you know, in Qatar, or Indonesia or Malaysia, that could also affect global prices, which could drop quite significantly. And this is always the problem with depletable forms of energy resources that have very long supply chains or the next tanker that gets hijacked trying to go through Iran, although it's previously been oil more than it's been gas. But in the US, I mean, I think to me, We've studied this a bit as well. It's the same notion of the kind of best performers versus the worst performers. It's like you can do gas in ways that even I, as a renewables and efficiency guy, will nod my head and say, yeah, that's actually pretty good. If you track for methane leaks, if you follow the IAEA's rules for the golden age of gas, if you do proper impact assessment siting, if you adhere to the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, a lot of the shale gas reserves haven't had to because they're under the Halliburton loophole of the Energy Policy Act of 2005, so they don't actually have to file permits and other things with the EPA and others. So it's kind of a – some companies still do it, though, because they want to track emissions and they want to file toxics release, inventory releases, and things like that. They'll disclose the types of propens they use in the fracking material. So I would put all of that in the kind of best practice. If you do shale gas that way, it's transparent. It's well-planned. They're trying to minimize externalities. They're seeking community consent. They're giving money back to the community, and they're not dispossessing people of their land or forcing them into shale gas. Then, yes, I believe that type of gas could work very well with renewables and efficiency, especially given that gas can also be flexible. 
right? Most gas plants in the U.S. are peaking plants anyway. Most of them are pretty modular at 25, 50, or 100 megawatts, 250 megawatts, not much bigger than that. So you can ramp them up and down. And there are some really nice synergies with solar, wind, and gas if you use compressed air energy storage, and that needs gas. So that's the case for gas. The case against gas is when you go the other way. It's, it's when you have gas that's done in ways that aren't very transparent, where they're not actually tracking water releases, or they're not properly injecting wastewater, where they're not telling you what's in the fluids, where they're rough-rotting communities into accepting it, and where they're just too rapidly depleting the reservoirs with little regard for local stability and little regard for employment and little regard for taxation, because they know in three years they're going to run through the reserve, and that creates these boom and bust cycles where communities then suffer because people came in, built restaurants and hotels, and they left and there's nothing left. So I think it's kind of those two worlds of fracking, and we see both well across parts of the US. And I think that done poorly, gas can be as bad as coal. And we've seen the life cycle assessments, and methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, with the global warming potential that is much higher. So the more immediate damage on the climate now is also irrefutable. So that to me means if you're going to do gas, proceed very carefully because the sustainability of gas depends entirely on how it is governed. Right, and the longer, my view is on it, the longer gas prices stay where they are, the more businesses are going under. And uh, you can certainly see that the, the, the amount of money pumped into the oil and, and gas, uh, onshore oil and gas in the United States uh, post the financial crisis was, was absolutely enormous. And you can see the cracks uh, unraveling and, and there's already been a wave of bankruptcies in the sector so it, it's it's a matter of time really it's a win question for me when gas prices go up um, now I want to ask you just just briefly and just kind of give me a, a broad view here um, moving off of fossil fuels entirely let's use the US and Europe as a base case what are we talking about in terms of just rough rough dollars and how much time i mean you know people talk about well we've got to do this now and let's we've got to have this solved in 10 years i mean that's that's really unrealistic uh, as far as time frame in my view so uh, how many trillions are we talking about and really realistically is it something we can accomplish in the next uh, couple decades or what do you think i think we could accomplish it i don't think we will but I think, I think we could. You know, there are situations where humanity has come together. World War II is often a great example, but other ones too, like some social movements around the abolition of slavery and women's suffrage. And of course, the one that no one ever wants to talk about. But the fact that the United States was able to create a coalition that banned alcohol, the women's temperance movement. I mean, how crazy is that? If we can convince a country to amend the constitution to ban beer and wine, don't you think we could probably do it under a certain set of scenarios and certain situations where we express the right environmental values to do it for climate change? So I think we could do it. And I think part of this, too, is the selling point that a lot of the low carbon energy sources, even if we're including gas and nuclear, along with the renewables and efficiency, so just not high carbon, we'll take medium carbon and low carbon, that collection of technologies can bring a host of different benefits that usually far surpass their costs, especially because they're displacing coal and oil, which are heavily polluting and are degrading our health and our environment anyway. Um, so that is why a low carbon transition often pays for itself over and over and over again. And just as one example, here in the Nordic region in Europe, the International Energy Agency did some modeling a few years ago that talked about Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Iceland, and Norway. And it found that the cost of fully decarbonizing their economies, not just their energy sector, but the whole thing, industry, buildings, electricity, transport, mobility, you know, even aviation and freight 
and shipping were all included, to decarbonize all of that would actually produce a net economic gain rather than a cost. The gains that you would get from displaced pollution and fuel savings alone more than paid for the transition. So that's the key, right? These things will pay for themselves. So why aren't we doing it? Well, I think that this gets into politics and culture and values. A lot of us, myself included, have a lot of contradictions in our lives. We have a carbon-intensive lifestyle. Even us scholars who are all in the IPCC, we're flying around the world. We're taking vacations. I have a car. I eat hamburgers, right? There are all these things that I do that I shouldn't be doing. Why do I do them? Because I like them because I guess I'm selfish, and because I guess my values prioritize my personal satisfaction or my family's safety over some abstract notion of the future or future generations that I haven't met yet. And I think we all struggle with this notion of consuming to better ourselves and our family or to have a job that provides income, whereas these other things that are five years out or 10 years out in a world of Brexit and Trump and all this uncertainty, who knows? I'll take my burger and my beer. At least that's certain. Um, and I think... <laughs> Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics uh, a few years ago before she died, used to say, you know, I'm not amazed we've made so little progress on climate. I'm amazed we've made as much progress as we have because climate and energy force politicians to make sacrifices in the present for future gain. And any politician never knows what's going to happen two, three, five, ten years out. And climate change is something that it's affecting intergenerational issues, so 50 years and 100 years. And even though it has that type of split, that whole temporal split between the costs now and the benefits later, we've still seen coalitions come across Europe and China, which are starting their emissions trading scheme. And states in the U.S., I'm thinking California, but also Reggie, the regional greenhouse gas people who are tracking emissions in the, in the kind of northeast of the U.S., right? We still have these groups come together and make that sacrifice. So we are able to do it. We haven't done it enough. We haven't done it at the right volume. And we haven't done it across all of the sectors that we need because it's not just electricity. It's also industry, agriculture, waste, mobility, and all of that. Harder nuts to decarbonize and to crack. So I think, but there's no question we could. I mean, the question of we will will depend on if all of us and the politicians that supposedly represent us step up and acknowledge that it's worth it and we're all willing to make the right ethical and value decisions that back that. Right. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. And, and I think there's always that underlying uh, human notion to a little bit of resistance for change. But I think uh, think that there are certainly things that are it, it's slow. It's slow for the context of time, but things are obviously changing. Now, Ben, I want to ask you before we wrap up here, uh, just another uh, odd question for you. So conventional uranium mining continues to be <laughs> the lowest cost for nuclear fuel. Do you look at this sector and do you have an opinion on the supply demand situation that exists with uranium mining? Uh, I did look at it once. So I, I was reading studies about uranium availability about 10 years ago. There was a, a great piece by Mudd and Dissendorf, if I got the names right, that projected kind of reserve to production ratios at hundreds or at least dozens and dozens of uranium mines around the world, as well as a secondary source of uranium from nuclear weapons that are being reprocessed and recycled. And at that time, I can't speak for since then, but that time 10 years ago, I do remember Uranium, while it was low cost, or at least certainly, you know, low enough to make nuclear viable as a fuel, it also had many of the same problems of oil and that many of the biggest reserves had already been discovered and many of them were past their peak. And there was a significant concern then about future resources. So they kind of thought we can certainly sustain the current fleet of reactors 
we could probably even sustain an increase of 5 or 10 or 15 percent. But if we're talking like a massive nuclear renaissance for real, like we go to a thousand reactors and nuclear goes from what is it like 16% of global electricity to apply to 30% or 40% or 50%, then it becomes a real constraint. And then they don't know at what point, I mean, uranium prices would have to jump. Other types of fuel sources like thorium could come in. And I think that that assessment strikes me as, as pretty intuitive that for now, at the modest rate that we have current reactors running and some are closing down, we can probably sustain them, probably for the next generation. But after that, I don't know if I have enough confidence in the companies and the resource assessments to know either way. I mean, have you, Andrew, seen any good evidence about the future availability of uranium reserves and how sustainable they might be? Oh, absolutely. It's all about price. And uh, right now, uranium's around $20, uh, $25 a pound. And uh, it's just all about what is the price and is there motivation for companies to go out and extract it? Obviously, we know there's plenty of uranium in the world. There's lots of that. It's just at what price can you extract it and do so with an incentive price that motivates people to extract it? And obviously, you've got to extract, you've got to have, uh, you know, demand on the fuel side for it. Um, so today you had a back in 2010 2009 you had a glut of supply that came online because of a, a nice price move uh, and then you had Fukushima which helped to mm. set the tone for a bear market and destroy the price and since then we've had nearly uh, 10 years not quite 10 years but a long period of time of low price and low price causes people to go find something else to mine and they leave the sector and, and mines come offline and capital does not get spent on replenishing reserves. And uh, so that's the situation we face today, even with a, a reactor fleet that is maybe stagnant or declining, you still have a fuel demand. And so actually uranium prices, uh, very bullish on uranium prices where they are today because there's no motivation then to go out and get it and go send it through the fuel cycle. And so that's what's really fascinating about that. So I wanted just to ask you about that to get your opinion. Now, Ben, I want to move on because we're almost out of time here, but uh, for people wanting to do some of their own research on energy, what sources have you found to be credible? Yeah, so I think we in the academy often toot our horn about the kind of peer-reviewed literature, and I will say the idea behind peer review is an independent check on quality. And in the, you know, when we're talking about nuclear and gas and even wind, there are a lot of advocacy groups out there and a lot of environmental groups that may only give you a distorted picture. So to my mind, the goal of good academic research really is to be that independent, neutral take, data-driven, unopinionated, or at least apolitical take on a given topic or question. And I think many times it does meet that criterion of being rigorously independent. So I like reading some of the kind of best journals that deal with energy issues. The two that come to mind are Nature Energy, which is only a few years old, affiliated with the journal Nature and the Nature Publishing Group, as well as a journal that I edit called Energy Research and Social Science. There are a good 15 or 20 other journals that I regularly read for my research processes, and I would recommend some of them, depending on your topic, if you like economics, Energy Economics <laughs> and the Energy Journal are two really good ones. If you like policy, Energy Policy and Climate Policy, those are also journals. So there's kind of a more specialized list. But I fully realize that a lot of people don't read academic articles unless they want to fall asleep. Um, so I often tell my students when they do research, the most credible sources do tend to be from groups like the International Energy Agency and the International Renewable Energy Agency. And I've been quite impressed with our very own Energy Information Administration, the US EIA, 
which is run it's by the U.S. Department of Energy. Usually the EIA, the IEA, and ARENA can cover almost everything you need. And then there are a few groups of kind of independent ent entities that usually produce pretty reliable, good reports. The World Bank Group does a good job every now and then on things like energy access. They had a state of energy access report a few years ago. Uh, you have other ones that can come out of other institutions. Uh, just off the top of my head, the World Nuclear Report, which is a report done by academics, but it's published as a report. Um, the IEA in particular will do spin-off reports. They have like a global electric vehicle outlook. I also mentioned earlier the golden rules of gas. Those types of reports can be can be quite good. Um, and then finally, occasionally I will go to the media, but the media can be less reliable. Energy is a very complex field, so you have reporters getting it wrong, confusing carbon with carbon dioxide, or kind of making misleading statements. Or many media firms, as you may know, are also, for lack of a better term, biased. I don't trust, for instance, Fox News. Uh, or I do trust the New York Times. I have families and friends who are the opposite. They don't trust the New York Times, but they do trust Fox News. So it's kind of a where the line between news and opinion is clear has kind of evaporated in the past 15 or 20 years. So, But I would still say that the peer-reviewed literature and those sources I mentioned are places to trust. I will just end by telling you a place I don't trust. I almost now never trust anything that I see on Facebook or on Twitter. Okay, and we'll throw Snapchat in there as well. And I and I haven't, uh, I have not uh, had or Instagram, um, which I'm not familiar with any of those applications. Uh, but certainly, uh, the mainstream media is 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 a lost cause. And I can't remember. It's probably been five, six, seven years before I've actually had a TV or even turned it on and to watch any of those channels. Um, well, Ben, I want to stop there. Uh, but real quick, how can the audience uh, learn more about you and and connect with you? Well, that's the nice thing about having a really unusual last name. So if you just put my last name, Sova Cool, S-O-V-A, Cool, in, into Google, it'll come up with my Sussex webpage and maybe even the journal that I edit. Um, and that's just a nice, easy way, we hope, for you to see, you know, our, we have a faculty profile, which isn't too long. Um, and you'll also see, to be fully disclosed, you'll see some of my critics <laughs> that come out who have legitimately raised concerns with some of the research that we do. So that's kind of a, I trust Google. Google gets most of it right. Uh, if you just put my name in and want to read more. Okay. Well, Ben, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to share your insights. Uh, we really appreciate it. You're welcome, Andrew. Have a great day.